Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? And for today's episode, I really should have said, howdy, y'all, how you doing? Because um, so I might be attending South by Southwest this year. It's a big event that happens in Austin, Texas. So I thought it might be cool to look back on the history of South by Southwest or South by, I guess, if you're one of the cool kids. I'm not one of the cool kids. I say South by Southwest every single time. Uh, it's often uh, designated as S. X, S, W, the X is in lowercase and everything else is capitalized. Um, yeah, I just call it South by Southwest because, again, not cool. This isn't news to you. You know it. And I thought I would chat about how it really got started, especially since it all started off as a music festival where a bunch of bands came together to play in various Austin venues to crowds. So how the heck did tech get involved in? In that, And how did it become such a big event for tech that arguably you could say tech has taken over South by? Look, I did it. 
Well, the story actually begins in the 1960s. If we want to look at what formed South by Southwest, South by Southwest would not have its first actual event until the late 80s. But in the 1960s, Austin, Texas was really a standout in its state. It wasn't like other parts of Texas. So Texas has a reputation for conservative politics and also having a very fierce independent streak. That That's part of the Texan identity. And Austin is a little bit different because uh, for a few reasons. One is that it had a very large public university, still does, a very good university, the University of Texas. And the culture at the University of Texas was far more liberal than what you found in most of the state. And around the university grew up this kind of liberal community. It was a community filled with artists and artisans and and uh, craftspeople and all sorts and uh, lots and lots and lots of music. So this is all starting to come together in the 1960s. Uh, Austin was definitely not a conservative city, even though it's the capital of Texas. And <laughs> the politics going on in the Capitol building might have been very, very conservative, but Austin as a city just wasn't. Meanwhile, at the same time, you had these small businesses that were establishing themselves in the city, many of them surviving because of the proximity to this university. And they started to get really, you know, established and bigger, bigger businesses in the tech field in particular, like IBM and, you know, Texas Instruments and AMD. They started to set up facilities in Texas. And part of the reason for that was that they wanted to lure away students who had just graduated out of the University of Texas to come in and be part of the workforce, to get young, talented people to join and to therefore continue to stay in front of competitors. So this area of Texas became very important within the tech sector. Uh, you know, obviously, we think of Silicon Valley here in the United States, which is in California, as being really important in tech. And it is. A lot of incredibly influential companies grew out of Silicon Valley. But Texas was also and still is very, very important in the tech sector. So this was uh, part and parcel with the the evolution of Austin as a community. You had a very tech savvy, pretty liberal city that was expanding in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the vibe of the city itself was kind of young and adventurous and experimental. Like this, again, very experimental era, the 60s and 70s. In fact, later on, much, much later, actually, the motto, keep Austin weird, would emerge. That was effectively coined in around 2000. So it would come much later. But that concept of keeping Austin weird, it was kind of paying homage to the Austin of the 60s and 70s that became this, this big city of the arts and of music and also of drinking. So in 1973, Texas changed the state laws to allow 18-year-olds to drink legally. Here in the United States, the legal drinking age is 21. But in 1973, Texas lowered it to 18. Now, it's a college town. You've got all these young people who are perhaps away from home for the first time in their lives. 
obviously, uh, drinking would become a big part of the experience of going to the University of Texas. And um, you had a lot of bars that would rise up around this time, especially around campus. So to this day, if you go to Austin, Texas, and you walk down, I want to say it's 6th Street. It's been a long time since I've been there, but it's just like lines of bars, bar after bar, with occasional like shops and restaurants thrown in too, but a lot of bars. And in order to kind of establish themselves and stand out from their competition, a lot of these bars would end up also having uh, a space for musicians to play and they would have live music. And so Austin, Texas became known as this live music capital where you could go to that, that town. And on any given night, you could go to one of a dozen bars and see a different band playing. So live music scene became a really big deal in Austin. However, by the time you get up to the 1980s, things were starting to change. There were a lot of snags that were slowing down Austin's growth and, in fact, impeding it in several ways. So for one thing, uh, there was a banking crisis that ended up hitting the economy in general, but Austin's economy in particular, and that really hurt. Uh, Texas also lost out on that drinking age thing because during the Reagan administration, there was a federal law passed that set the national drinking age to 21. So then you don't have the 18 year olds allowed to go into bars and drink anymore, which obviously meant that there was a big hit to the bar scene around the university of Texas. And this really had a pretty big impact on Austin's local economy. But then a group of folks came up with one way to potentially help Austin regain some of its its footing and bring more attention to the city itself. So, like I said, the, the city had already established that it was a very active and important music scene. But for the most part, the only people who knew about it were the people who lived in Austin. So you had like the college students and the locals, the townies, who knew about the music scene, but anywhere outside of Austin, it just wasn't looked at as a, a music city. So the thought was maybe we could throw a music festival and attract more people to the city. And uh, some movers and shakers in the Austin scene would start meeting at the Austin Chronicle, the newspaper in the, the city. And the meetings were really kind of like top secret because they were really kind of putting their heads together on what would be the best way to do this that could potentially get us some more attention. Among the brainstormers, uh, there was a guy named uh, Louis J. Myers. He was a, a, a manager for various musicians and artists. So he came in there from that business perspective. You also had Louis Black, not the comedian, but rather an editor for the Austin Chronicle. You had Roland Swenson, who would go on to become CEO of South by Southwest and then later on the executive chairman, and he had a few others as well. And so they would meet and start brainstorming about this idea for a music festival. And they decided that if they were going to have a music festival, they wanted to make sure that they named it in such a way that it represented the region and did not make it Austin-centric. Even though the festival was going to take place in Austin, they didn't want to call it like the Austin Music Festival because they were worried that that wouldn't attract people from out of town. It wouldn't accomplish the goals they had set out, which was to kind of raise the profile of Austin in at least the regional, if not nation, uh, estimation, right? So after much debate, 
they decided they would call this new music festival South by Southwest. They obviously took inspiration from Alfred Hitchcock's film North by Northwest, but it made sense. Like they would feature a lot of musicians, a lot of musical acts that grew out of the South and out of the Southwestern areas. Uh, And in fact, a lot of the bands that have played there over the years are ones that I saw in little local establishments here when they were just starting out. So they announced this intention to have a music festival in October 1986. The actual event would take place the following March, March of 1987. And according to all the histories I could see, although it blows my mind, if this is really true, it really is strange. But all the histories I saw said that when they were putting this together, the founders thought that maybe they would attract around 150 people to come to this music festival. Now, the reason why I find that hard to believe is that this music festival also had 177 groups and artists performing at 15 different venues across the city. So in other words, I find it hard to believe that they were putting together an event where the the musicians (laughs) would outnumber the people attending the festival. (laughs) Now, to be fair, I have also been in theatrical productions that ended up that way, where the, (laughs) the cast of the show I was in outnumbered the audience that attended on a given night, which I always found kind of sadly comforting because I I thought, yeah, well, even if the show does go really bad, we have the advantage in numbers. We could probably take them. That actually did happen to me a few times with a staged production of A Clockwork Orange. Um, In case you're curious, yes, I was in the staged production of A Clockwork Orange. No, you cannot see the pictures because... I was in leather chaps and a mesh shirt, and uh, I played victims two through 17. That was essentially the characters I played. Anyway, 150 people did not show up for that first South by Southwest. Instead, it was 700 people around there. So wildly successful, considering what the organizers were first envisioning. I still think that estimated 150 attendees was incredibly pessimistic. Uh, It's hard for me to believe that, but 700, not bad. Still pretty modest, really, when you think about music festivals. I mean, a lot of the music festivals here in Atlanta, especially the big outdoor ones, can bring well more than 10,000 people for a single performance. Now, uh, I took a look at some of the acts that played in 1987. The only one that jumped out at me that I recognized right away was the Reverend Horton Heat because I saw his band play live when I was in college in Athens, Georgia. So I've seen the Reverend Horton Heat live, which was a great show, by the way. It's a nice small venue. It was a uh, high energy, but he was the only act that I recognized in a, in a short list. I didn't see the full 177 breakdown though. So this event was big enough to gain enough success and, and, convince the organizers that this was a good idea and they should make it a yearly thing. They also even had uh, keynote speakers, even at that first event. It's it's weird to think about because most music festivals don't have a keynote speaker, but South by Southwest did right from the very beginning. Their keynote for 1987 was Huey Moe. That's M-E-A-U-X. And he was a record producer. So he was kind of 
there to talk about sort of the business side of things. That's another thing is that South by Southwest has always had a little bit of like a professional conference vibe to it as well. So you've got like the music festival stuff and all the performances, but you also have the various panels and conversations and interviews that are meant to increase awareness and understanding of business elements and ways to, to go about uh, monetizing or leveraging your creativity in ways that are practical and productive. Okay. So that's setting the very basics there Uh, over the following years. They had a lot of other musical artists that would include folks like Billy Ray Cyrus and his achy breaky heart, Mojo Nixon, who tells you that Elvis is everywhere. Uh, Jen Blossoms, uh, the Dell Lords. I love them. Uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. Uh, Driving and Crying from my own hometown. Hometown boys represent. Bare Naked Ladies, uh, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, Southern Culture on the Skids. Love that band. Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. They're the band that actually created the theme song to The Kids in the Hall, if you ever watch that show. Cracker, Lisa Loeb, Everclear, Meat Puppets, tons and tons and tons of bands. This is just up into the early 90s, because until the mid-90s, South by Southwest was just a music festival. But all that would change in 1994. And I'll explain more after we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, before the break, I mentioned that South by Southwest was this growing music festival. It was getting really big over the years. By 1994, they had more than 460 musical acts across the various venues around Austin participating in this festival. So remember, it was like 177 for the first year, 460 by 1994, Uh, not even a full decade into the, the festival yet. And it was really neat. You know, for one price, you could get admission to all the shows that you could dream of seeing uh, based upon their schedules and your ability to get around town. But yeah, you could buy this one admission and go see as many bands as you want throughout the festival. Well, in 1994, the festival expanded beyond just adding more musical acts. This was also the year that the festival grew to include films and multimedia content. Now, remember, this is 1994. So the World Wide Web is really just a couple of years old at this point. Hardly anyone knows about it. And and very few people in the mainstream, very few households actually have Internet connectivity. That just wasn't a normal thing yet. You had people in college who were aware that the Internet was a thing and that the Web was a thing. You had people in business and in the military and in government organizations who were aware of it. But your average person just wasn't. So. To go this early in 94 and add the multimedia component was was interesting. It also does not surprise me that most of that focus wasn't on the connectivity side of things because that just hadn't really taken hold in people's imaginations yet. It was more in things like programming and video games, stuff that lived on a computer but did not connect to an internet. The keynote speaker for the interactive side of things was Richard Garriott. Uh, Richard Garriott creates video games. He's probably best known for creating the Ultima series of computer games. If you're not familiar with Ultima, oh, that was a really, really influential series of fantasy computer role-playing games. It introduced things like morality into computer role-playing games. Earlier, it was essentially kind of an amoral hack-and-slash kind of approach to to game design. But starting with Ultima 4, Richard Garriott really started to add in, no, you have to make the right kinds of choices in order to progress in the game. Interesting approach. Very innovative at the time. Garriott himself is also known as Lord British. That's the name of his fictional alter ego within the Ultima series. He's the mostly benevolent ruler of Britannia. And Garriott is, has got a really fascinating background. He's the son of scientists, one of whom was an astronaut who actually spent a couple of months aboard the Skylab space station in the 70s and also was in Space Lab in the 80s. And uh, yeah, he, he's, he himself was extremely successful in the 90s uh, as a video game creator and a business owner. 
famously, Richard Gary himself would go up to space and visit the International Space Station as uh, a private citizen. One of the few people, like one of seven, I think, who ever were able to do that in the era before private space industry. This was back when you had to work with either NASA or Russia in order to have a chance of going up there. And yeah, he he did it. Uh, anyway, just as a point of reference, the music keynote speaker that year was Johnny Cash. So talk about an influential artist. So you had Richard Garriott delivering a keynote for the multimedia side and Johnny Cash doing the same for the music side. So by the time you get up to 1995, South by Southwest was now a music and media conference for realsies, and it included film as well. So people would come and talk about film. They would do panels about film and they would premiere films at South by Southwest or sometimes screen, do special screenings of films. And it was growing up enough so that the festival needed to spread out a little bit. So in 1995, film and media conference would split over into a separate event. And Richard Garriott would again deliver a keynote in 95. In 1997, the multimedia part of South by Southwest got a rebrand. This is when it became known as South by Southwest Interactive, which is what it's still called today. And there were some really important guests that year. Uh, there was Thomas Dolby and Jaron Lanier. So Thomas Dolby, uh, <laughs> I think of Thomas Dolby as the musician behind She Blinded Me With Science, but has done tons and tons of work in tech. And then Jaron Lanier He's the guy who coined the whole virtual reality concept. Uh, he didn't invent virtual reality, but he coined the idea. He coined the um, the phrase and is a visionary in that field. Uh, no pun intended. But Jaron Lanier did a lot of fundamental, foundational work for virtual reality, as well as other technology-related stuff. And by this time folks were starting to really talk about the power of the internet. Like by 97, people were starting to really catch on and it was expanding beyond the little niche communities that had been aware of the internet and been jazzed about it. But by 97, you started to see excitement, right? The idea of, oh, 97 could be a really big year for the internet. And there were discussions about stuff like online communities, which wouldn't have happened a few years earlier. But now there was this recognition that an online community could be a very powerful thing. Film was really hitting hard too by the late 90s. You had Quentin Tarantino there. You had Mike Judge there. Uh, Brendan Fraser was there during his first run as being a beloved actor. I'm glad to see him uh, getting a lot more attention and uh, acknowledgement today. When you get up to 1999, uh, Mark Cuban, the entrepreneur, would give a keynote. Philip Glass, the musician, the composer, was also one of the interactive guests that year. Oddly enough, not just, you know, sometimes we see this too, where there's a lot of crossover between the different tracks of programming. So having Philip Glass appear to talk to the interactive crowd was interesting. Also, 1999 South by Southwest held a panel about streaming video technology. 99. Now, at the time, no one was really sure if streaming video was going to work, right? Like 99 at that point, if you had a video online, it was more likely just a file sitting on a database. 
And someone would have to go and download that video to their computer and then use a video playing program of some sort to access the video file and watch it because there weren't a lot of options for streaming. But in 99, they were actually talking about that at South by Southwest. And the reason I bring this up is because one of the important things to remember is that while South by can be a hype machine, it can be kind of like people all blowing smoke up each other's rear ends for seven to nine days. It can also be a genuine place for real discussion about stuff that's important, that is unfolding, that's at its very you know, earliest stages. So we don't really know where it's going to go. And in 99, no one was predicting that YouTube was going to be a thing. YouTube wouldn't launch until 2005. That was six years later. So really prescient of the panelists to talk about streaming video all the way back in 1999. I would have been really interested to uh, attend that particular discussion and see what they had to say. Because, I mean, today, you look around, there's so many different streaming services. Like, that's where the focus of entertainment is today. I don't know that anyone in 99 would have envisioned what we have at our disposal now. Fascinating stuff. By 2001... The festival, the music side, had more than a thousand artists playing at 48 venues across the city. 2001, so more than two decades ago, and it had more than a thousand artists. That's just so huge. I can't even imagine being in Austin and wanting to see, you know, various groups play and having to decide between that many. That's like I, I get uh, choice paralysis all the time. <laughs> Analysis paralysis, I guess you could call it. Well, if you give me too many options, I kind of shut down because I just can't. After you get past three or four, I start to panic. Uh, I complain about this a lot to my partner who <laughs> will often send me 30 to 40 choices at a time. And I just tell her, I'm like, this is not good for me. <laughs> I can't handle it. So I can't even imagine looking at a different thousand different acts and tried to figure out where I'm going to go see. But 2001 also saw some interesting speakers. Uh, the founder of Napster uh, had attended and he gave a, a interview over at Interactive. Uh, remember, Napster was truly a, a an important uh, service in the early 2000s. Napster was seen as an enormous threat to the established music industry, which is interesting that they would then have him appear at South by Southwest because obviously like he was like uh, most wanted for all the different music studios that wanted to sue Napster out of existence, which did eventually happen. But it really also brought to light the usefulness of peer-to-peer technology and it it really demonstrated that there was a a real need to address digital music in a way that made sense for consumers. Uh, 2001, this is before we get to things like the launch of the iTunes store. It was hard to get digital music. There wasn't like an easy way to access it and to purchase it and to be able to, to download it. And so people were turning to piracy because that was easy. Uh, it wouldn't be until we started seeing things like iTunes really establish itself where that would change. Plus, obviously, the music labels and the government of the United States in particular brought the hammer down on all the different sharing 
services that really cut back on piracy that way too. Uh, and obviously all that would change again once we got into audio streaming services, which has been talked a lot about at uh, South by Southwest as well. Another person who was at 2001 was one of the co-founders of Google, Larry Page. So at this stage, you know, again, pretty early on in the lifetime of South by Southwest, you start to see some important people in the various industries arrive and, and give talks and presentations and workshops at South by Southwest. This applies across all the different tracks. I'm focusing mostly on interactive, but you also had, you know, incredibly important people in the world of music, whether they were musicians or on the business side or the engineering side of things. And equally so in the film world, really important filmmakers. So 2001 also had a session that was important called Is Anyone Making Money? <laughs> and, you know, you also have to remember 2001, this is like where the, the bubble bursting is happening in big swing. It's the spring of 2001, so it's before 9-11. 9-11 would really be where the entire world would take a hit financially, but the dot-com industry in particular would be completely, almost completely wiped out. Not completely. There'd be some companies that would survive, like Amazon survived. But, you know, 2001, is anyone making money? It's the questions that you need to ask, because the answers to that might help you avoid disaster down the line. There was also a lot of discussion about wearable computers in 2001, which, you know, that was still a science fiction kind of concept in 2001. Now we have all these activity trackers and smartwatches and stuff. So again, very prescient. Uh, in 2004, Jonathan Abrams of Friendster would present at South by Southwest. Friendster would not be super important for much longer, but this was like the dawn of the social platform age. 2005 saw Malcolm Gladwell give uh, a presentation at South by Southwest. Malcolm Gladwell, of course, hosts Smart Talks with IBM, which you've probably heard a few of those episodes on this feed. So friend of the show, Malcolm Gladwell. Laura Swisher, very important in tech. She gave a presentation that year as well. And then in 2007, uh, we saw the launch of Panel Picker. So this is, in South by Southwest's own terminology, quote, the official user-generated session proposal platform for South by Southwest and South by Southwest EDU, end quote. So Panel Picker is a way for attendees and hopeful participants to submit ideas for stuff that needs to be talked about. Typically, it can be very buzzy, hypish stuff. On occasion, it can be very, very important. Sometimes it's too early to call it important. And it ends up being a lot of people talking about buzzwords and not much else. But the idea here is that let's look at the, the issues that are either really big or about to be really big in the industry and pitch a panel based off that so that we can have a discussion about where things are going. 2007 was also when Twitter would attend for the first time and got a lot of attention. So it didn't launch at South by Southwest 2007. There are a lot of stories where that's kind of thrown around as a fact. That didn't happen. It had actually launched the year before, at the end of March in 2006. So too late to be at South by Southwest in 2006. But it was very small. It was mostly the internal team of Twitter and their friends and family. And then a small 
following beyond that, right? It had not really made a big splash, but in 2007 at South by Southwest, they put up a bunch of screens that would show people's public tweets as they were making them. And this got people really excited and a lot of people started to sign up. And really 2007 South by Southwest is where Twitter would establish itself as having an important space in the tech field in particular. And it just grew from that point forward. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about one of the worst interviews in South by Southwest history. And it involves a very prominent tech leader. But first let's take this break. Working remotely where you are, shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, I promised y'all a train wreck, and 2008 South by Southwest gave us one. It was when a journalist named Sarah Lacey conducted an interview with a tech leader named Mark Zuckerberg. 
head of Facebook at the time, now Meta. And this was a big deal. Mark Zuckerberg did not give interviews, especially in public, really. And so this was a highly anticipated event at South by Southwest 2008. As such, the crowd filled in the room. It was like at, at full capacity to the point where they had to have overflow rooms where they were watching a video feed of the interview unfold. And they were apparently playing like high energy music before the interview. And there were like people in the front row who were even dancing to the music. Like it was a, it was an energetic vibe in that room. You had a, people who were really hyped up. Mark Zuckerberg and Sarah Lacey come out. Zuckerberg was clearly not ready for this. He was nervous and sweating. And it was not a good look. Like it was like panic <laughs> in, 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 in front of everyone up on stage. And the interview starts and a lot of people were complaining early on that Sarah's questions to Zuckerberg were kind of softball and were focused mainly on businessy types of stuff and not on nuts and bolts and policy and things like this, things that people were really interested in. Like there were people who had tough questions that they wanted to ask, but they felt that Sarah was taking a different approach. And to be clear, there were more than a few people. I have, I have never actually sat down to watch this interview because I can't, I, I empathize too much. I can't handle watching people struggle and being super uncomfortable and awkward. Uh, I do that enough for myself. So I have not watched it myself, but the, the all the different reports I was reading, including one from Baratunde Thurston, who's been on the show, made it sound like the questions just weren't going in the way the crowd wanted and the crowd started getting uneasy. They felt like the interview was largely a waste of time and that Zuckerberg was clearly out of his element. Here's the thing. Twitter had had not launched, but Twitter had become popular in 2007. This is 2008. So now everyone at South by Southwest is on Twitter. So people started going on Twitter and live tweeting their responses to watching this interview unfold to the point where Baratunde actually said there were two events happening simultaneously. There was the interview that was actually unfolding in the room, and then there was everyone heckling the interview online via Twitter as they were responding in real time to what they were seeing. Toward the end of it, apparently, the crowd started to shout out questions and, and demanding answers. Zuckerberg was miserable. Sarah was out of her element. And things got really super ugly to the point where people just talked about being the most awkward, uncomfortable interview of South by Southwest history, which honestly I find comfort in. And I'll explain why in a little bit. <laughs> but the interesting thing I think about this, this interview, apart from the fact that it was just not a good day for Mark Zuckerberg or for Sarah, for that matter, is that it really illustrated how important Twitter would be at events like this, where you could have this secondary conversation unfold as an event itself is happening. And that was really the first time that that would play a huge part at South by Southwest. And it was kind of like the dawning of realization on all the people who are attending. Uh, this interview, from what I understand, is available to watch online. So if you are morbidly curious to watch you can. Maybe it turns out to not be as bad as everyone says it was. But every 
every uh, report I read made it sound truly terrible, and I just don't think I could sit through it. Anyway, uh, I'll talk about my own personal version of that in just a little bit. So 2009, we get up to the point where Foursquare would launch at South by Southwest. This was the original Foursquare. So when it originally launched, Foursquare was this app that would let you check in to places you were visiting. So you might go to like a restaurant and you check in via Foursquare to say, yes, here I am at this restaurant. And it helped with discovery. So people who followed you on Foursquare could say, oh, they went to this restaurant. They said it was really good. Let's go, let's go there tomorrow and let's check it out. And so restaurants began to have incentives to invite people to come in and, uh, and check in at Foursquare and you could get like an appetizer or something on the house. I actually had that happen a few times when I used to use Foursquare for this reason. There were also other, uh, things you had to take into consideration. Like you are giving up privacy by checking into locations and saying, this is where I'm at. Depending on your situation, that might be a dangerous thing. And eventually Foursquare would get away from that. They, they got away from that location, uh, check in element to the app. But in 2009, when they first launched, that is what they were all about. That's also when South by Southwest introduced the accelerator pitch competition. Uh, this is an event where various startups all try to pitch their idea for the possibility of getting investor support. Uh, we've seen similar events like this in the tech space, but yeah, this is when it became part of South by Southwest's, uh, uh, own scope of, of activities. In 2010, there was an app that was created by 24 people who used to work at Stanford Research Institute who showed off this interesting voice-activated personal assistant thing. Uh, it was apparently very bare bones, but really fascinating. And it must have been truly fascinating because a couple months later, Apple bought the whole project and it would become Siri. Uh, by the time you get up to 2013, you've got Elon Musk attending South by Southwest. He was interviewed on stage. This was specifically with his involvement of SpaceX, but Musk has been to South by Southwest a couple of times, which makes sense. I mean, SpaceX is, is kind of centered in Texas and, uh, he's talked about all sorts of tech stuff at the event. Don't know if he's scheduled for this year or not. I also thought it was interesting that according to South by Southwest's own website in 2013, one of the presenters in the interactive area was Neil Gaiman. Um, I think of Neil Gaiman as an author and I, he writes a lot of fantasy and kind of horror stuff and things that are, are really fascinating. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily think of it as interactive. So I'm very curious what he was, what he was actually talking about. Uh, I don't have that information, but I thought that was really interesting. Uh, you also had a lot of other things going on around this time in 2014. The big news was Edward Snowden uh, attending South by Southwest virtually. He couldn't do it in person because he was a very wanted man, still is. He attended via Skype and called in and talked about his role in being a whistleblower and leaking classified information to WikiLeaks. Uh, this was a very controversial move on the part of South by Southwest. You actually had U.S. politicians contacting the conference and asking them to rescind that invitation. Uh, other 
guests who were at 2014 South by Southwest include Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astronomer, uh, Adam Savage, the former host of, of Mythbusters, and Chelsea Clinton was there too. Okay, we have made it up to my own personal terrible interview of South by Southwest. I've only ever been part of an official South by Southwest event once till this year anyway. And that was in 2016. And the event was called An Honest Conversation with Yik Yak. If you don't remember, Yik Yak was, and actually now it's back again, but Yik Yak was this this, uh, social platform app where you could post messages anonymously that were geolocated to wherever you were. And only people within a certain range of your physical position would be able to read that message. So let's say I'm in downtown Atlanta and I use Yik Yak and I write something like traffic today is out of control. Well, the people in that radius would be able to see that I had posted that and they could chime in. Maybe they'd say like, you're an idiot. It's always out of control. You're just not in downtown Atlanta very much, which would be pretty accurate on all, all fronts really. So anyway, Yik Yak was mostly known for its, uh, popularity at college campuses. And there were a lot of people who were concerned about Yik Yak because of the, the ability for people to potentially abuse folks anonymously. And there could be terrible bullying and just trolling in general. Uh, it could lead to some really toxic behaviors. So there was a lot of concern about this. Now at the time I had not really conducted any interviews. I hadn't really moderated panels I was asked by my boss of the time to do this, and I wasn't confident enough to say, no, I don't want to do this. So I, I agreed to do it. And that's on me. That's my fault. I, in fact, I want to own this. Like, <laughs> I hate that it happened, but boy, it really was my fault for not saying no. So I agreed to do it. But I had to submit all my questions in advance to the Yik Yak team, which meant that I felt intimidated. I didn't feel comfortable writing questions that were more critical of the service. And then we get to the day of this interview and I'm there with the two co-founders and I'm asking them questions, but they're giving me very short answers, which means that I'm burning through my questions so, so fast. And we finally get to a point where we're supposed to get to audience Q and a, and that was supposed to be like a 10 minute session. But they had gone through so quickly that it was more like 25 minutes or maybe even 30 minutes left in the, the, the panel. So I opened it up and uh, let me tell you, the people who were asking questions from the audience, they did not have to submit their questions in advance. And they really asked some very tough questions. And I just kind of sat there thinking I would rather be anywhere else in the whole wide world. Uh, I was completely out of my element. I was not a good moderator. This is one of those low points of my career. And I feel comfortable talking about it because I think that there are lessons to be learned. The big one being, if your boss asks you to do something that you really don't feel comfortable doing, say so. <laughs> because you might, you're going to save everyone a lot of heartache. Like if you, if they go with someone else who does a great job, then everyone's happy. You didn't have to do it. Someone else did what they were good at. Everybody looks good and you can move on with your life. But if you end up saying yes, like I did, then you're going to end up having this, this weight on your shoulders. 
and it's really hard to shake off y'all. I mean, that's like seven years later and I still think about that night. Yuck. Anyway, probably didn't have to worry about it anyway. Cause like there's a lot of other stuff going on in 2016. The Obamas were there in 2016. So my little crash and burn with Yik Yak was nothing. It certainly wasn't on the level of the Zuckerberg interview from a few years earlier. By 2017, South by Southwest was starting to become a more unified event. They were creating 24 tracks across music, film, and interactive. So they were kind of reversing that decision of splitting everything off into sort of separate events at this point. 2020 was uh, an early cancellation due to COVID. Keep in mind, South by Southwest happens in March. So March of 2020, like people were still not really sure what was going on with COVID. They were starting to get worried by, you know, February, but it was still fairly early and South by Southwest canceling was one of the early indicators that, oh, this is a big deal. This is going to affect a lot of things moving forward. And so the the show was completely scuttled in 2020. It was a huge uh, uproar, not uproar, but a huge upset in the tech industry. 2021, there was a South by Southwest, but it was online only. So again, no in-person conference. They did have musical performances and stuff that streamed out. So you could buy an online pass to South by Southwest, but it obviously was not the same. 2022 went back to being both in-person and online at the same time. So you could actually go in person, or if you wanted to, you could stay and, and watch on your computer. And these days you can buy various types of badges to access the different events. And y'all, you got to have deep pockets to go to South by Southwest as an attendee. Like if you're not a guest and you don't have a badge that's already assigned to you, as I recall, when I got my badge back in 2016, it had like the dates that it was active. And beyond that, I was not, you know, I didn't have access to South by Southwest, which makes sense because you look at the price of these things. So if you only wanted a badge to the interactive parts of South by Southwest and and that's all you really cared about, that would set you back $1,595 right now. Uh, If you were to buy it at the door, it'd be a hundred bucks more than that. Very, very expensive. Uh, now let's say that you just wanted to do music. If you just wanted to do music, that's actually the cheapest. That's just at $895. And South by has had uh, a sort of a decline in attendance on the music side of recent uh, years. So that might be why it's, it's the cheap price of $895 film is a thousand four hundred ninety five. So just a little less expensive than interactive. If you wanted to be able to see everything at priority uh, category, well, you'd have to spend $1,895, almost two grand. Now, according to South by Southwest, uh, any badge gets you primary entrance into the related category and secondary entry into most other events. I don't know what secondary entry means. I just assume that means you get like, you know, not the not the prioritized seating and there might be much more limited space for that but at least then you could in theory buy a badge for $895 for music and use it to see most other events during the whole festival which stretches like i said more than a week at this point 
Or if you prefer, you could get an online pass for the low, low price of $199. So there is that. Anyway, South by, uh, I think it's a cool event. Uh, there are a lot of other things that are happening at around the same time, like parties and promotional stuff that really end up being a lot of fun that are in addition to the, the official South by Southwest events. Uh, so it really becomes a big party atmosphere, but uh, it's also incredibly expensive. And I think it becomes sort of almost an elitist kind of thing because only the people who can really afford it are going to be going. And it really creates a have have nots situation there. And I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, I think that's kind of a bummer. Uh, I, I love live music. I don't think I love it enough to spend $900 on a badge to be able to see it all. It's just, it's kind of sad. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of cool stuff happens and a lot of really interesting technologies have launched there or become popular there. So hope that I'm going to be going this year. And if I do that, maybe I see some of you out there. I'll keep an eye out. And uh, yeah, before I run too long, I'll just say I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.